The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. Samuel Harrington. A graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School, Dr. Harrington practiced internal medicine and gastroenterology for more than 30 years in Washington, D.C. There he served on the board of trustees of the Sibley Memorial Hospital, a member of the John Hopkins Health System, and the former hospice care of D.C. His new book is At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. You can read a review of the book in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Harrington, thank you very much for speaking with us on Essential Conversations. No, uh, Rami, thank you very much for having me. Please call me Sam. I will do that, Sam. Thank you. You can call me Rabbi Dr. Rami Shapiro. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, no, I'm just teasing. So I want to, I, I said to you before we even started that this was a very refreshing book because it's so honest. So if you can turn to the introduction, page, you know, Roman numeral 13, XIII, and read for us the little paragraph that starts, this is a book about exit strategies. Okay. This is a book about exit strategies. It is indeed another end-of-life book. It is not about making the end-of-life good. It is about making the end-of-life less bad. It is not about extending life. It is not even about extending high-quality life. It is about avoiding a painful dying process and futile medical care. It is not a philosophical treatise about what makes life worth living. It is simply a practical look at declining health, old age, progressive debility, and practical choices that people can make to minimize the likelihood of the unconsidered death and to, to maximize the likelihood of a better death. Okay. Thank you very much for that. It's such an uplifting thing, you know? I, I like to think of it as empowering. And when I uh, refer to the unconsidered death, I think, and then I subsequently refer to that or previously 
as a medicalized death, a death that is uh, where, where violent technology, meaning breathing machines and other uh, forms of advanced technology are used when a patient might have not have chosen that exit mode if they had thought about it more. Yeah, yeah. I, you, you give three, I guess, broad categories of death in the book, good, bad, and better. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on those? Well, a good death is, uh, I'll come, a good death, we all have a vision of dying quietly at home after, uh, after some kind of party and uh, plaudits and everybody's happy and comfortable and understands what's going on. And, a, and that is largely a figment of the imagination. I mean, it does happen, and that is what we strive for. Uh, and a bad death I define as in the intensive care unit. And a better death is moving from the intensive care unit toward the good death that um, I sort of idealized. But if I could take a minute to define a good death uh, at sort of on an academic basis, it has been studied and the, the attributes of a good death have been condensed to a variety, uh, a small number, and I'll list five. Uh, the most important attribute is control, meaning the patient asserts some control over their decision-making. Comfort comes in second, meaning we don't want to be in pain. Closure is third. That's the opportunity to reconcile with family and friends. Affirmation, being, meaning being appreciated as a patient, having one values um, accepted is the fourth attribute, and trust is the fifth. And of those, uh, in my mind, the more of those attributes you can incorporate into the death scene, in a sense, um, the better the death will be. Do you think the current system of medicine that we have now encourages those or supports those five things? Well, I think the current system of medicine moves us away from that toward the medicalized approach because we have put in place, innocently put in place systems to improve quality of care in hospitals, but those systems take on a life of their own. Uh, checklists are important for quality outcomes to be, uh, to be improved in a hospital, but when checklists involve moving patients through tests they don't want or receiving IVs they don't want or uh, receiving other tests so that they're in the best possible shape for the surgery that's been promoted, uh, these systems take on a life of their own and patients uh, and, and treatment takes on a momentum that patients have a hard time standing up to and saying, uh, please don't do that. I'd, I'd rather be left alone or I'd, um, I hadn't thought this through. Let me rethink it. Let's slow down the process. What do you think a patient, I mean, what kind of, def I was going to say defendant, does a you know does a patient need to help out? My my dad died a few years ago, and uh, my sister really took on the brunt of saying of, of translating his desires to the medical staff, and and he was lucky to have her there. My mom was 
too distressed to do anything. And I think my dad was having a hard time communicating. Is it best to have family members or is there another way to go about doing it? No, I think that your sister exemplifies what we all need. When we get old and sick, we are less able to speak for ourselves or to think clearly for ourselves. And we need family members and friends and agents, uh, meaning somebody we've indicated in advance, to speak for us or to help us make decisions. But they also have to be on board with the way we want to make decisions. They have to share our vision of what we want done at the end of our long life. And so um, it's important to incorporate more than one family member, usually because somebody isn't necessarily going to be available all the time. And that's where multiple conversations come in to spread the word about what we want and why we want it. My father had a vision, which I think is easier to share sometimes than specifically saying, no, I don't want a breathing tube. No, I don't want hemodialysis or yes, I want a breathing tube. Yes, I want a feeding tube Uh, because a vision is something we can understand and we can use uh, to interpret uh, you interpret it for other decisions such as breathing tubes or dialysis or, or feeding tubes, et cetera. And my father's vision was to die of a ruptured aneurysm. Uh, he would, his vision was to say no to uh, emergency surgery, to say yes to palliative pain medication and to die within hours. Now that's a very naive vision, but what it tell, tells me or told me and my sisters was that he was looking for an opportunity to die quickly while he was still vigorous and to avoid a long debilitating illness. So we can use a vision like that to, uh, as family members to interpret how to make decisions later. How would we encourage people who are listening, who are you know, maybe either facing this themselves, but certainly uh, more, even more likely to have elderly parents who are facing this. How do they? How do we encourage a loved one to articulate a vision? Well, I think uh, I think that family members sort of have a responsibility to interpret a vision. Uh, we don't necessarily um, just the the vision is more spontaneous. I think so. A family member has to be ready for it. I was sort of stunned when my father was talking about his aneurysm and I was trying to get him to repair it or at least to do something to strengthen it. And he had pointed his finger at me and uh, clenched his jaw and asked me why uh, he would want to fix something that will carry him away that he wants to go. Uh, But other visions, uh, we uh, sort of come up spontaneously. For example, you know, when Groucho Marx said he planned to live forever or die trying, well, that's a vision. I mean, and it's a vision that will end up in the intensive care unit. But if that's what he wants and he understands those implications, that's fine. And if somebody else had sort of laughingly said that, a family member, you could question them and say, okay, well, let's talk about that. Uh, I was asked in one interview in the past, what my vision was. And I said, oh, I don't have, I, I really didn't articulate a vision. I, I wrote this book. 
And then I realized that I had articulated a vision uh, to my youngest child, uh, who was, at, let's say, 18 at the time. And she was talking about this, about end-of-life decisions. She was planning to go, go to college and medical school herself. And I said, well, you know what? When I'm really old and weak, just put three trays of food in front of me every day, but do not lift a spoon to my lips or put a straw to my mouth. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but she remembered that. Uh, and that was a vision. And so later on, she reminded me of that and she could use it. I mean, I'm, by writing this book and by writing my advanced directives, I've given, I've given other di di uh, directives. But in fact, that vision remains the same. And it'll probably be something she remembers for a long time. I think that's really powerful. I mean, I have advanced directives also, but the vision idea, I mean, I'd never thought of it, never heard of it before until the book. And I just thought, boy, this is something that people could think about and share with loved ones that would open up to a very deep conversation if they were willing to have it. It also sounds like the loved ones, you know, your, your dad said what he said and, and, and you picked it up as a vision, but the loved ones have got to be Oh, I don't know, paying attention, you know, list, listening for that vision and not let it just slip by or not just dismiss it as, oh, you know, you're just talking, I'm not listening. So that's a very, very powerful thing. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, I, I'm reminded of another uh, sort of vision that occurred in our family. I was sitting with my in-laws discussing a neighbor who was recently diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, this neurodegenerative disease that called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis that leads to paralysis, but normal brain function, normal cognition. And one of my in-laws said, oh, as long as he... He, one of my in-laws said that he wanted to be kept alive as long as he could read the New York Times and understand it. And that is a vision that I immediately latched onto, but the other in-laws sitting with him kind of let it glance off and they ignored it. But that was a real statement on his part. And we have used it for further discussion as a result because that means he wants to have mechanical ventilation. He wants to have feeding tubes. He wants to have IVs as long as he can read the paper and understand it. And that's 
I mean, I'm, although my vision is sort of uh, darker, let's say, um, than some, uh, we have to respect everybody's vision and we have to ex- respect what they want toward the end of life. It may, not, it may not come to pass, but we have to respect a patient's perspective. Right. And then thinking, it, I mean, that's certainly true from the, the doctor-patient point of view, the medical staff and the patient point of view, but also just from the fa- within the family to respect that vision. It may not be yours, but to respect the vision of the person. So, so yeah, this, this, is, this is really very helpful. I, I know the book is not a philosophical treatise, but um, I want to ask a couple of questions along those lines based on what you've written. So in, at one point in the book, you quote, um, or the, I'm, I'm just quoting you, you write, what makes humans forget that we are not immune to death? And I've been reading a lot of Seneca lately, and Seneca says you should really think about death all the time. And then you quote Ecclesiastes in the book uh, about the inevitability of death. So how, how wise do you think it is for us to keep our mortality, you know, uppermost in our heads? Well, I, I think it's wise. I don't think it's, I, I think that uh, without some form of denial, if we walked around saying we're going to die every minute, well, that would be a very difficult way to approach life. So, so I think we have to try and avoid that kind of um, grim perspective, but we have to remind ourselves periodically that it is inevitable and we have to make a plan or have a plan or at least um, if we have a plan if we want to have some control over the process and don't want to just um, lose ourselves to it. So I think it's wise to, to recognize that, to recognize it on a regular basis, but not to dwell on it perhaps yeah, or cloud right. all our thinking with that. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to... to obsess over it but that wasn't my idea but and i didn't get that from the book but we we do tend to ignore it and you you also talk about uh again i'm quoting you that the current generation is obsessed with youth because youth sells so i'm i mean i get what you're saying and i i'm not disagreeing but i'm wondering as millions and millions of baby boomers march you know into the grave I wonder if death will start to sell. I know that I've personally hosted a number of death cafes, you know, that's where people get together once a week for about eight weeks to discuss the dying process with medical professionals and to talk about afterlife scenarios with spiritual teachers. I've done retreats on dying and death. There seems to be a real interest among people who realize it's, it's closer than they would like to think. So do you, see, do you see it shifting at all as, as boomers get older and older that maybe the culture will change and we won't be so youth-obsessed? I have not experienced that. I have not seen it. I would hope that there was some kind of um, refocusing on, in, in that way. But what I have seen, or at least what I've have written about in the book as a result of my professional experience is that that boomers have an, a very high expectation of what medicine can do, largely based on media portrayals, media manipulation, public uh, relations, uh, advances that tell us 
we're going to cure cancer. The cure for dementia is right around the corner. Uh, we have a moonshot for cancer, uh, et cetera. So uh, I think that I think that baby boomers are are enormously influenced by this and feel that they have a much better chance of living in a sense forever compared to previous generations. So, and I don't think that they focus nearly enough on the fact that uh, we haven't moved uh, the average life expectancy as much as they think. I'm very interested by what you just said about death cafes. That's, that's a very interesting point. And I would like to, in a sense, see more of that as a reality check, perhaps. Yeah, Death Cafe started in Scandinavian area and then came to the United States. I mean, I, I'm sort of jaded. I think that, that you know, while there are these things and I haven't participated in them, I also get a sense that there's going to be a, oh, I don't know what we'll call it, but a post-death industry where you know people who claim to be spiritual but not religious will sort of start taking seminars about, okay, how do I get to the next bardo or how do we get the next reincarnation to, to allow the denial of death to continue even when the medical facts are, are what they are. So there's, I mean, there's no end to, to human delusion, I suppose. <laughs> right. Fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah. Which is, which is why the book is, is so, so helpful because you don't, you don't get sidetracked by that and you really do keep us on, on track. So in the few, actually in the last minute that we have left, I love the idea of vision. I'm just wondering, because throughout the book, you have these very helpful sections called Things to Remember, Things to Consider. So vision was amazingly important. You got one or two other ones that you want to leave us with before we have to bring this to a close? Um, think about hospice care as an alternative medical system. Don't think about hospice as going home to die think of it as going home to live and that hospice is protecting you from a medicalized death while treating your symptoms and improving the quality of your life. Mm. Excellent. That, that is a great way to bring this to close. Vision and hospice and, and a lot of compassionate honesty, it sounds like, from the book and, and just from talking to you for the last few minutes. Our guest today was Dr. Samuel Harrington. His new book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, is reviewed in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Dr. Harrington's work at his website, samharrington.com. Sam, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Rami, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. 
Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.